right, gang. It is the best Tuesday you've had all week. Welcome to the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with my sidekick, Matt Dixon. Stoked to be here. And we are not live streaming the show on Facebook today. We've had a fiasco of audio problems. Yeah. We're figuring it out, though. We're going to work on it. We'll get our people on it. Or we'll get people and then get them on it. There you go. So that's the way that's going to go down. Uh, I don't know if you guys noticed or not, but uh, we had a decent little rally in July. Uh, I, I would say it was a little better than decent, wouldn't you? Like, uh, yeah, it was welcome relief, right? If mm-hmm. we go back over the last month, basically, so starting around the beginning of July, we were down below 3,800 today, uh, just a shade under 4,100 on the, the stock market. Uh, but yeah, great rally over the the last month. Still down, you know, like 12% year to date or so mm-hmm. for the Did, S&P. Weren't you saying that most of the sectors had a pretty decent little recovery? Um, except for communications, wasn't it? Communications was still sort of flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what happened was we look at one of the things that we look at underneath the hood if you will, in our firm, is we look at overbought and oversold indications in the market. And so I believe there are, what, 11 sectors within the S&P 500, like like primary Mm -hmm. categories. And eight of the 11 were overbought by our measure. And it's a simple measure, believe it or not. We're uh, essentially looking at the standard deviation of a of an average trading range over the last month, essentially, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then we're saying, well, if you're two standard deviations above that trading range, then you are probably over. What was the percentage like to be in, in between two standard deviations? Wasn't it like so? The first standard deviation is usually sixty eight percent, and then two mm-hmm. standard deviations is something like ninety two, ninety three percent of the sample right. size falls within there. So you're talking about uh, you know a seven percent probability that you're outside of that. So, right. so you're kind of getting to the edges of the bell curve when mm-hmm. that happens typically. Now, does that guarantee anything? Pfft, no. I mean, it doesn't because you get into pricing anomalies and patterns that, you know, how do you price an uptrend into a market where it's like, well, the prices are going up and have for the last several weeks. So the trading range is going up. So if you have any kind of excursion from that, it can throw it off. So one day can, you know, give you kind of a false indication. And I feel like you have to also consider the fact, though, that the markets have been, you know, considerably lower in the last, you know, right. six to eight months. So it's like, well, yeah, it might have gone up this percentage, but it's still down year to date by this percentage. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the flaw in the data, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the issue would be uh, I, I one time saw this thing about averages that was pretty hilarious. And it's this cartoon that shows a mud puddle, right? Mm-hmm. And a guy wearing boots was standing next to the puddle, and the puddle looks like it's about three inches deep, right? But uh, it says average depth six inches, right? And there's a ruler in it, and it says three inches deep. Well, it's like you know twenty feet wide, but that one section in the middle is like ten feet deep, mm-hmm. right? And so you look at this and go, "What's the average depth?" Well, you know, if you're measuring it, it's usually only three inches deep. But that one spot, you'll drown in. <laughs> right. And it's just kind of a funny thing that you can skew numbers mm-hmm. depending on what type of methodology methodology you use to Yeah, are you using the mean, them. the mode, the range? Like, how are you coming up with this number? 
Correct. And yeah. so, yeah, is it an arithmetic mean? Is it a geometric mean? Uh, and and then, uh, then you uh, the other filtering mechanisms. Here's a here's a way to think about filters. By the way, this is how it made sense to me. Okay. okay. Most people right now, you're listening to us on the radio. Maybe you're online. Maybe it's a podcast. But imagine if it's a radio signal, and we have to transmit this through the air, and you're far away, and you hear all this static in the signal, and it's hard to get the radio signal out of the static because there's background noise too. So what can you do? You can apply a filter that's designed to cancel out the static so mm -hmm. that all that's left of the signal is the, is the radio signal. Of course, the problem is you're going to weaken the radio signal too, right? You may take some of the highs and the lows out of it, and you'll strip some of the bandwidth out. The question is, is enough left that you can still understand it? Hmm. Okay? And that's the magic of filters is if you get them right, they can leave enough of the signal to, to improve the outcome. Right. If you get them wrong, you can completely change what the signal was intending to send. Yeah, don't apply the wrong filter. <laughs> yes. And so that is a really interesting, the reason it's so real is because what's a radio signal, right? If you were to plot it on paper, you'd see these jagged lines going up and down mm -hmm. and up and down because it's sending this this uh, the, the signal that's going to be received somewhere else and it's going to be processed and generated into sound waves. Kind of like the stock market. You've got well, your ups and your downs. Well, the stock market is a bunch of yeah. chop, right? So yeah. yeah, the filter matters. So there there are some real relevant things to consider in how you filter data. Mm -hmm. Especially when people are trying to feed you a narrative and fit the data to their narrative and they only use the filters that they want to use because they have to write well, that story right and this i think you've you just snuck in on one of those super key relevant points we all like all of us yes even me mm. we have biases we have the the view of the world that we bring to a situation and so we're gonna see it our way duh because it's us now you get into the field of psychology and lots of, and they're going to say good quality thinking and so forth is going to require you to try to step outside of those biases, get to an objective position and try to evaluate the data objectively. That's why I love what we've been doing with our, our team approach to the weekly investment committee meetings, mm -hmm. right? Because we all take a survey anonymously. We sit there on the computer and we punch in all of our responses to you know, how do you feel about this section of the market? How do you feel about the bond market? How do you feel about this and that? And so when you look at that data and aggregate it, it's like, well, 100% of us all believe this piece. So we're pretty convicted that way. Whereas sometimes we're all over the board. And so it's a split decision, right? Like we're not super convicted. And even that doesn't necessarily assure that we'll be right. No. It just says whether or not we're in agreement. Right. Right? So 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 you think about that. Now here's the real trick to it. And this is something that came out. Now I can do this. Uh, if anybody's been a long-time listener, you have I've had this person as a guest on the program before, uh, one of my mentors uh, early in my career. Uh, so happy birthday, Bob Kendall. Mm -hmm. Right. So congrats on the milestone. And uh, it, Bob taught me a ton early in my career, just about everything from the way you filter things to approaching a problem solving. What he really uh, gave me a foundation in was systematic decision making in investing. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, and it was how can I remove the subjectivity as much as possible in an investment decision? What was one of your big takeaways and well, learning moments from that? One of my big takeaways is that probabilities can be really valuable. Mm-hmm. It doesn't guarantee an outcome, but what 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 we we would do is, for example, this is if you've heard of algorithms, right? Have you ever heard of trading algorithms? A lot of people have heard of these. Mm-hmm. Well, we Bob had built trading algorithms, and then I sort of learned from him and uh, furthered my study on how trading algorithms get built. It's a decision matrix, okay? And if you think like a computer for a moment and less like a human being, computers don't have opinions. Mm-hmm. And if you're screaming that they do, that they're going to be sentient or whatever, okay, well, so far they're not supposed to have opinions, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that's a Hollywood thing. It, they just deal with binary decisions. So computers just make, they can make very complex, compound binary decisions. Mm-hmm. So if this, then that, and do it a bunch of times to, to reach an outcome. But ultimately, that's what a trading algorithm is designed to do, is make yes or no decisions until it reaches a point where it will make a call. So if you want to decide whether or not to buy something, okay, well, first, does it pass this hurdle? And if it does, does it pass the next one, and the next one, and the next one? And if it can pass everything, then we can buy this thing. But that doesn't guarantee it will work. Mm-mm. What it does is it gives you a data point now that you can test, right? And what yeah. you can test is, did that methodology work or not? Because that methodology was trackable and mm-hmm. reproducible. You could say, well, I can use the same criteria and make the decision again. And if I do that enough times, I develop a sample size. So you look back and say, hey, this thing worked 75% of the time. This is a pretty good indication that it's in the ballpark of being correct, accurate more than it's wrong. Correct. You, you get a sense of, is this working and is it reliable enough that I can use it as a way to make decisions in my investments? Mm-hmm. Now, there are more catches to this process than, you know, is it working, right? Mm-hmm. What, so, give me an example. Well, I will, but I feel like this is a perfect cliffhanger. Okay. So we'll we're going to take we'll, it to the we'll, break. We'll take a break and we'll come back. And I I think our listeners are trying to figure out, okay, how do you know if an algorithm is working or not? Or you know, maybe you don't care, but how do you know if your investment decision methodology is working or not? We're going to unpack some more of that, but first this break. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, we're back. Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You got the True Wealth Radio Show. Uh, You can get caught up on the podcast. We are talking a little bit about how you can grade your effectiveness as an investor uh, and especially with the the way the market's been all over the place, you know, mm-hmm. July was this great rebound month, <clears throat> and we, we were talking a little bit about trading algorithms. Mm-hmm. I know it seems weird. How would you get to trading algorithms? It's not about the algorithm. The reason that I want to talk about this a little bit is because it's about a way to get yourself out of the decision process. Hmm. Okay, one of the things that we can point to is that statistically it's you you really can't get good sample data if you keep changing the variables or the way that you measure it yeah right if you constantly change the way you measure something then you don't have any consistency well 
the human factor in investment decisions is one of the biggest issues. Right? It's just a, because we carry the bias that we carry. It's because we bring bias. So if you love the, the healthcare field and you always want to lean into that sector, then you're probably going to come up with reasons as to why you should so buy it. So much more than that. There's there's a field dedicated to behavioral finance and the mm-hmm. people, the way we process money decisions. Okay. And so like if you already own something, you'll make different decisions than yep. if you don't already own it. Yep. That's okay. a good and example. And maybe you won't if you're following rules, but Typically, a person makes different decisions when they own something than when they don't, because they will often exhibit what's called anchoring bias. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I paid X amount for it. This this is the issue where you know somebody says, "Well, a candy bar." I always joke that a candy bar should be fifty cents, and it's not. No. Right? Like you can't get a fifty cent candy bar anymore unless it's like tiny or something, right? But like a regular candy bar, they're way more than that now, mm-hmm. and. But but it's like my childhood. They were it was actually forty cent candy bar when I was a kid. That's like when you went to the. What happened store. when it broke a dollar? Did you like? It just, just... broke me. Okay. I'm like I've just never been the same since. Uh, it, you know, because that's inflation at work. By the way, I also remember gas below a dollar, so I'm now, starting to really age myself. Now You're I got to like, know though what, what what candy bar did you grab? Oh, man. I was always a Snickers person, like so, 100% of the time, I, or I mean, a payday. I do like Snickers. I really, I was kind of a chocolate and caramel guy, so there were two of my, it was either Twix bar or mm. a Milky Way were, okay. were some of my favorites. Those are good. Yeah, yeah, so I'm just, and, and I'm, you know, fairly democratic about candy. It's like, <laughs> mm, sugar, yum. But, so you don't, you don't uh, discriminate too much on what type of candy like, bar someone hands you? I'm like, hey, wait, is that candy? Okay. It's sort of like ice cream. It's like you really have to mess up ice cream for me to not want it. Butterfingers, though, it's always in your teeth. I can't do Butterfingers. Oh, I could totally do Butterfinger. Oh, no. Yeah, that, that takes me back to childhood, too. Yeah, that's just like, I'll just save that for later and enjoy it, you know? Eventually, it'll either, you know, rot my teeth or melt away, whichever <laughs> comes first. We'll see. <laughs> I don't even know how I got us in the weeds on that one. Well, we're talking about anchoring bias. Okay, anchoring bias. Yeah, and so the idea that we, in your mind, you, you, benchmark a price mm-hmm. and so for me that stupid candy bar price is benchmarked and now things get compared to it i mean i could do the same thing with like my joke about taco bell right mm-hmm. i remember the 59 79 99 value menu yeah and the only thing you get for 59 cents now is probably condiments right like, yeah i don't think anything costs that right now it's like you know the taco is like a dollar it used to be 59 cents i'm like wow now if you're screaming corporate greed Maybe a little. Okay, that that might be in there because they are beholden to the evil shareholder. I get it. Right. But also, things are just they're more expensive. That's what happens when you water down a currency. So, and which we're super good at that. Whether, I mean, you may not have agreed to it. I didn't particularly agree to it, but that's what we're getting. Mm-hmm. So, away we go, right? Uh, the anchoring bias thing clearly affects decision making. It's just another example of how we bring our baggage to the table. So if you think about a computer-driven trade, it doesn't bring the emotional baggage. Computers don't have anchoring bias. They just have the formula of how they're going to analyze and assess data to spit out a decision. Okay? And that's largely what an artificial intelligence system does too. Right? It's just going to look at dependent variables. Like if you heard of a neural network, 
Okay, neural network is a computer that is going to reweight variables if it learns that one variable has more significant contributing factor than another. So it's so learning from itself. It's learning from itself, but learning is sort of an air quotes term, right? Mm -hmm. Learning means that it can recalibration. See, moments, yes, yeah. that's basically it's it's recalibrating what it's doing, and it's 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 going to. If, let's say it has 10 different conditions that it's looking at and it discovers that two of those conditions don't really affect the outcome much and eight of them do more, it's going to start to reweight the conditionality to bias to the things that are contributing and ignore the things that aren't. Mm -hmm. Okay, And it will call, and if those two things that aren't, you know, start to contribute again, it's going to readjust as it's, as it relearns things. Right. So right. that's the air quotes issue here. Well, the machine learning and the artificial intelligence processes are they're useful because it's a, it's effectively grading itself and learning like i said air quotes learning how to get better as investors we can do some of that mm -hmm. right? we have access to the the tools and machines where you can you can take an idea and when i say codify it that that's it means like commit it to a series of steps Right, so step one, do this. Step two, do that. Step three, do that. So that somebody else could reproduce it to and understand it, because that's effectively what you're telling the computer to do. And and you can't do things like you can't do things that don't have a, a clear answer. You can't say, well, take a look at it, and if you like it, go ahead and move it next. Like, well, how do I know if I like it? That's yeah. like totally vague. Right. So it has to be, you know, if it's above this price, do one thing. It has to be measurable. It, it has to be measurable so that you can act on it. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and it needs to be a non-subjective measurement. Mm -hmm. Okay, So an objective measurement as opposed to a subjective measurement. So if you can use objective data, you can then spit out a sampling of things. Right? So right here's, here's my series of decisions. Follow the outcomes. And then we can, we can look at you know, 100 or 1,000 samples and see how often did it work. And you go, okay, well, now I can set up probabilities around this to determine whether or not it's effective. And if it works less than 50% of the time, you're like, may as well flip a coin, right? It doesn't really work. But if it works like nine out of 10 times, you're like, wow, I'm really onto something. This is a, a very interesting dynamic that seems to be yielding statistically significant outcomes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is what polling is for, right? But you're, you're basically creating your own polling system for an investment decision process. Okay? Now, take that as a concept and are you done? If you're building an investment system, if if like are are if you built something so look mm. if I'd have done all these things uh, and took a look at it. I feel I like done? it's not because that's all kind of backward looking, right? And so you got to be able to look to the future and say, well, what's on the horizon? Yeah. Because that story fits that time frame, but what's this next time frame hold for right. us? Right. And there are some methodologies that you can use mm -hmm. that will help improve an outcome. For right. example, you could take some randomized periods of time and remove them from the sample size. Mm -hmm. Right, so I'm just to get the outliers so, kind so, of well, not to get rid of outliers. Okay, you you take some segments of time and remove them. So now the statistics don't include those time periods. Hmm. And then what you can do is you could say, well, let me test everything, and if it works here, now let me test it independently on these other time periods. Hmm. 
And now it's given me sort of a blind sample, right? Well, here's two different times in two different situations. Did it work in both? Mm-hmm. Right. So the data is not incorporating and averaging the whole sample any longer. It's okay. treated as two separate samples and you can grade both of them now. Hmm. So that's one way that you can improve them. And then the other is you could start to actually march it forward, meaning, well, we'll start acting on this data and see if it works. There was a catastrophe back in, I think, the 80s really? around the SNL crisis where there was a company called, I think it was Global Capital, mm-hmm. came out, a bunch of you know, trader, you know, quant wonks that said, well, we can beat the market, we're going to use these algorithms, failed failed significantly, like, and they, they lost a ton of money. Huh. And um, there were bailouts and other issues to fix this. This was really before my tenure in the markets, but it's proof that just because you think you've beaten the market, rarely have you, because markets abhor exploits. Right. That kind of reminds me, I know it's not exactly the same, but with Zillow, thinking that they could beat the... Um market with computers and buy up housing based off of certain price points that the computers projected and they bought a bunch of housing and it didn't sell the way that they thought it would sell and so they lost a lot of money yeah so there are there are plenty of examples in history where that can happen or has happened i think the challenge that we we run into and why pure like there will be those that argue that you could that everything in a stock is represented in the price of the stock. So you could actually make purely quantitative decisions, and there are firms that do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually not here to say that that is a bad right, idea. wrong, or the other. Yeah, because yeah. if you've got data to validate that it works, and you've, you're marching it forward and it's working, then it's working. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, that is typically stuff that is black box, meaning they're not going to tell you how they're going to do it. If somebody's got secret sauce, they they might sell you the uh, results. And you can pay to have the secret sauce, but they don't give you the recipe. Like mm-hmm. the 11 herbs and spices, that's not for you to know. Right, because if someone gets the recipe, right. then they're going to use that to right. exploit the, the market. Right, the recipe secret recipe, you don't, it's guarded, right? Yeah. And I, I, by the way, this is why if you see one of those ads on a financial website saying so-and-so cracked the code of the market you know this 24 year old figured out the code of the market and made 1.7 million dollars in the last 12 months starting with only five thousand dollars click here to learn how and you know what we call that garbage i was gonna say salesmanship but yeah it's it's bull yeah it's total garbage well he might have made the money but he just because he did it once doesn't mean he can I doubt replicate he even it. Made the money. I oh think yeah, most I of the do time, too. These but are fictional stories because look, it's clickbait. If yeah, if you had figured out the secret to the market, you don't need to share it with anybody. You can print money. Mm-hmm. But people are like, well, they sell it because you know that's how they're. No, you don't have to sell it. You can print money. Mm-hmm. Right? If you have a printing press, it's like why would you? Give away the secret so the secret stops working. Right. Just what go, I just say, right? Yeah. Markets abhor exploits. Go make your million dollars in another six months and then do it again and then do it, it again exactly. and be a multimillionaire instead of try and sell something you, for twenty nine yeah, ninety nine. You yeah. don't have to sell to somebody else. What what that really is is clickbait. It's usually a hypothetical example. If you get into the the fine print of, well, had you bought these penny stocks in this exact sequence, it would have happened, mm-hmm. right? But nobody really did it, and and past performance isn't a guarantee of the future. And you know your results may vary. And this is our service that you're really buying. And actually, we have no liability whatsoever for the results. So you're going to pay us, hope for the best, and regardless of what happens, it's really on you, not us. 
Right. And I look at people and go, and you still buy this, right? And I guess people buy lottery tickets too. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you're being duped. Okay. You're just, and, and if, and if you are, look, the, someone's duped, out there like, duped once, I will say, now you're informed. If you do it again, totally on you. Really should have been on you in the first place because, like, if it sounds too good to be true, it's pretty much too good to be true. Yeah. Okay. So that's just the, the like, the markets are not going to give you a secret where you can print the money and nobody else can. They're going to keep the secret and print the money. Okay. Yeah. So it's just crazy town that people fall for that, but they do. So this brings us to yet another element in the psychology of money that you know greed can make you do dumb things and fear can make you do dumb things is there a third piece well there's a, tons of pieces when it comes to psychology and how again how you grade these things i want to talk about how might we be able to frame this up in such a way that you as an investor can assess the markets and try to keep your sanity in the process, right? Like how can you avoid sanity and confidence, sanity, confidence, or can we just step out and be next to our emotions and, you know, maybe they can exist, but they don't have to rule us. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're going to talk about some ways to do that, but we do have to take another obscene profit break. Okay. All right. So stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You got True Wealth on News Radio 1240. Well, 93.9 FM and 1240 KQE. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show, where we are trying to today, I'm not going to say defeat our emotions, but I am going to say maybe we could partner with them rather than allowing them to rule us mm. when it comes to investments. So navigating those waters with the tippy canoe. With a very tippy canoe. Uh-huh. Because let's let's all be honest for a moment. Money ha- comes with baggage. Mm-hmm. Okay? Like you, it's and by the way this is your baggage, not the money's baggage. Okay? That's a good point. Money is just a thing it's a tool, it's a resource, it's a medium of exchange. It is not the root of all evil, uh, right? It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. Mm-hmm. And absolute power is what corrupts absolutely. The money is just a thing that is utilized to exchange value between people, right? And different monies have been key throughout history. I think it's okay? important that you set that framework. So. Yeah, if we remember that money is a tool, mm-hmm. okay, it's not a measuring stick for your value as a person. Nope. Right? If you have more money than somebody else, it doesn't make you better. Okay? That's not how this works. And so we that's that's part of why it was important to me early on that the name of this show was True Wealth. And we talk about currency as relationships, friendships, memories. That's the stuff that matters. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was one time described to me as the stuff that money can't buy and death can't take away. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, that is what wealth is. Okay. That's riches. Money, that's how we trade our time. Right. Okay. And so it's a store of value and it's a measure of leverage, but that's effectively what, it's, what it is. So let's be grounded in that first so that we have a conversation about our baggage with money. Okay. Everybody's got it. For some of you out there, the money comes into your hands and goes out immediately. 
Mm-hmm. In fact, because you're so used to not having money, if you get it, while this is really self-defeating, it's like, well, I've got money. I better spend it before it's gone. Right? It doesn't make any sense to the natural saver who says, if you spend it, it will be gone. Yeah. But psychology need not apply here. This is emotional baggage we're talking about, right? It's not logic, okay? And then to the habitual saver who's always fearful that it will not be available in the future, so it can never be spent, right? That's the other end of the extreme. And then you've got people that they can spend it on other people but not themselves. You've got some people that can spend it on themselves but not other people, right? Some people that... It, you know, there's no charity whatsoever. Others, you know, you, you have to do that or, you you know, you don't have value. I mean, there's we just have baggage. Sure. Right. All of us have baggage. So that baggage affects the way we make decisions. Right. Even as an investor. It's part of why when, when we talk about our investment committee on this show, the reason we have a committee approach is not because because like design by committee rarely gets the best outcome right engineering by committee try to build an airplane by committee you'll get it away more than it should it'll be really strong be really heavy really expensive right which explains our military because everybody involved wants to make sure they're not the weakest link right so you'll over engineer it but that comes with other penalties the same happens in lots of decisions But when it comes to investing, why do we use a committee? We have lots of rules already. The committee is there to evaluate the time the rules aren't working. Mm -hmm. Okay, Because economic conditions change. Rapidly. Yeah, and things go haywire sometimes. And like it should work, but it doesn't work right now. Mm -hmm. If a computer doesn't know how to deal with that, right? It has to let it break. And if it's a learning algorithm, it's going to have to get new data for a while until it figures it out. Mm-hmm. Humans have the ability to have insight. Doesn't make them correct. But part of the benefit of a committee is first, if somebody's freaking out, there are other people to be ballast, right? Don't freak out. Don't jump. <laughs> okay. If somebody's paralyzed, hey, you got to move. We can't be paralyzed here. It is a support network, but we're also all looking at the same data points and going, do these data points, are they within bounds, right? Are the parameters right. still functioning? So that's the benefit of it is it's a it's a check and balance against rules that can become dogmatic rather than effective. Yeah. Okay? So So that's part of why we do it. So how might you as an investor make better in like better um, less emotional decisions well i feel like we hinted at it because you were talking about how we use an investment committee so there's more Mm -hmm. than one of us okay so i think that's a good starting point right like if it's just you in your own mind making all the decisions you have probably a higher opportunity for error because you have no one to bounce ideas off of right so talk to someone who is educated in the subject matter even right? if they're not educated yeah. i think talk to somebody else and can you listen to their opinion before giving it to them mm-hmm. okay listen to that again can you listen for their opinion before giving it to them 
You all know what I'm talking about, don't you? The yeah. person that's like, well, it's like this. You know what I mean? And then the person just nods the head and it's like, yeah. they're not really confirming what you're saying. Yeah. They're just agreeing with you. Well, or they just want to get out of it. So let me agree to get away. Right. Okay. Uh, and if they don't have an opinion and you want to say, well, then let me explain what I'm thinking. Do you think I'm missing something? Mm-hmm. The goal is to balance your thinking or to fill in the missing pieces, not to steamroll somebody into agreeing with you. Because you, you don't need that conversation. I think another big portion of this is going into it without having an agenda beforehand, right? Like if you walk yes. into this and you're like, well, I, I really kind of think this way. And then you try and research around that, right? You're going to change the narrative where if you just look globally at the whole picture and then see what the data is showing you that changes things. Right. And I think you're talking globally, not like look at the whole world. Right. You're saying the, take the a step big picture. Yep. Yeah. Look at the big picture. That falls under what is commonly called uh, confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's this idea of uh, we talked a little bit about this on the break. If you're if you're wondering, it was the idea that sometimes it's easy. It's like, you know, I read this thing or I heard from somebody. Before you know it, you've got this idea in your head that something is going on. Mm-hmm. And so you approach the data looking to be right. And then it's pretty easy to find it. Well, yeah. Or, or you know, if you're looking to be right, then you'll ignore the data that might disagree with you mm-hmm. or you will, you will process it differently because you really don't want to be wrong. You want to be validated. So let me go seek the things that will validate me. And you know what the beauty of the internet is? You'll find it. Mm-hmm. Right? You'll get what you're looking for. You can find validation. You can find people to agree with really crazy stuff out there too. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, should I jump off a bridge? Like, yeah, do it, man. Everybody's jumping off bridges. Like, <laughs> you know, well, I'm like, well, what kind of bridge? How high, you know, what are we talking about here? Um, you know, is it safe? Is it, you know, like, is there water okay. under that bridge? Yeah. Well, you know, it's a it's a pretty low bridge. It's really deep water, and there's a lifeguard and safety protocols. So I'm like, well, you might be able to jump off the bridge. It's not normally advisable, but maybe, right? You know, like, it's a whole <laughs> different way to approach the problem than <laughs> I got to get off that bridge now. Uh, it's so it's. I realize that's such an extreme and silly example, but, but it's, it's it's pretty real in investing. So that is, I have learned, and I go back to, again, I referenced my mentor earlier, one of the things that he impressed upon me early in my career, and this is, you know, 15, 16 years ago, when he said, don't, it was a, you don't need to bring baggage to, he didn't say, I'm paraphrasing, basically, your opinion isn't what matters, right? The market will do what the market will do, so it doesn't care about your opinion. Hmm. Your opinion is baggage, right? I it's mean, baggage it's true. analysis. Your opinion is now. Now there is something that I think that you can do that could be very valuable, and, and and so you don't have to discard your opinion. But I would encourage you, if you turned your problem solving approach around a little bit, I think you your opinion may not only be useful, but you know it may be very informative. But there's something important that I think you need to do first before Ooh. you put that hat on. What is that, David? Well, we take a break, oh. the last one, and then I will talk about exactly that. I want to talk about how to frame your research and how that can help produce 
potentially superior outcomes. Okay. But we got to do this last break first. So stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. Hey, gang. Welcome back to the home stretch of the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio. Matt Dixon. With. Yes, that's me. Yes. Hello. All right, crew. You've made it this far, and if you're just joining us, I'm going to encourage you to grab the podcast available tomorrow at littlejohnfs.com. It'll be under the Educate tab. we got a bunch of them there. What if and they also, just want to chat? Well, what if they want to talk to someone? They could do that. You can uh, you can call or text to 541-375-0898 if you're looking for some input or investment advice, if you've got questions personally. Uh, because you know we're, we're talking a lot about the DIY approach to things, but for many of you, you're going to just say that's I, I lack the bandwidth or the desire to deal with this, and so we're looking for somebody that we can trust to to partner with, and I get that. Can they even just stop by the office? Uh, yes. Let's have. I would like that. Like, just come on in. Like, let's see a. A nice space. So, so you can do that. Big old smiling and face. And Matt will be delighted to see you. I That's will right. probably be up to my elbows in work. Uh, yeah. So it's usually, uh, you, you're welcome to stop by. I think the issue yeah. is more, it's a, if if we get you on a, a, like an appointment environment, mm-hmm. then you know you're going to like have that time dedicated and you won't right. be competing for something else. So you, you kind of roll the dice if you just want to swing through. We largely work on appointment, but... Uh, the the point is that we'll help anybody. You know, maybe not everybody becomes a client of our firm, and that's fine. But but right. we're willing to help anybody. That's kind of what our passion's for here. And th- this is the last thing I want to leave you. So again, okay. if you're just joining, you're gonna the, the, today's podcast is about how our own biases and our emotions can betray us in the process of analyzing investments. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the ways that we can step out of this? And we talked in the last segment about how your opinion can can be your own worst enemy sometimes because it's true you start looking to justify why you're right okay for whatever reason it's it's human nature we like to be right okay i mean nobody's trying to go out there and be wrong on purpose that's weird but if when it comes to your investing in particular i think an ounce of humility is really really valuable because the market doesn't care if you're right or wrong. It's going to do what it does. You could think you're right, and it's still going to punk you. Mm-hmm. And you could be wrong, and it can punk you, right? And, and 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 you could be right and still be okay, but the pride is going to be the problem here. So here's what I suggest. Turn the process on its head. Like Turn it inside out for a second. You bring all your opinions, put them in a box, and close the lid for a minute and try to look at the data and pretend for a minute that you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. You can't predict the future, none of that. That's not what we're endowed with. That's not our skill set. We're not clairvoyant. But we can look at the data and then the data will tell you what's going on. So you can look at rates and you can look at pricing activity. You can look at the characteristics of the markets, whether it's debt to equity ratios, right? Or the percentage of insider buying or the percentage of short float in a position. Uh, you can look at when options, expirations, you can look at all kinds of stuff, right? But the trick is try to look at it very open-minded and say, okay, here's all of this data and here's what's going on. 
my opinion lives in this box that's locked up over here for a minute. Does anything going on explain what I am seeing? Because here's the theory, right? And this doesn't guarantee an outcome either, but the theory is, the and part of this is Occam's razor, right? That's, that's, a, that's a theory that suggests that the most simple explanation for something has the highest probability of being the explanation, right? That's the most likely cause. Right. You lace in too many details and you get off course. Yeah. So these, these highly complex conspiracy theories are often very difficult because you can't get that many humans organized to pull it off, right? Like, and and we can always joke about think of any large organization like it doesn't matter if it's the you know the DMV gets picked on or something like that I'm not going to pick on them I think they do a great job locally here but the idea is any large bureaucracy takes a long time to move because that's how people work together there's too many chinks in it so I'm like how are you going to pull off this exotic high level conspiracy theory you mm. know like they like Bill Gates is putting nanobots in you. Or something. I'm like, really? You got to pull that wool over how many eyeballs, or how many people know about it and they're cool with it? Yeah. Like it's just weird, right? So that's not a probable explanation. I didn't say it was impossible, but it's not probable. More probable is that the explanation is well, there's a lot of humans involved, and humans make mistakes, and they're clumsy, and the communication gets cobbled up, and so it, it just kind of there was a breakdown, and that's what it produced. Okay. So you look at the data. And you say, what is a reasonable explanation for what's going on? And then you can look at all the other theories that are floating around out there. And the one that most likely aligns with what you see is probably what's going on. Now compare it to your opinion. You take it out of the box and look at your opinion and say, is my opinion like radically out of line or is it kind of in line? And does the new data inform my opinion? Like, will my opinion move or am I just really stubborn and fixated? Mm-hmm. Because now you have to ask yourself, am I data fitting? Is this my own bias that I'm just trying to confirm? Or is the data really indicating something like this? Can I put us in the weeds for the last brief hit, section? Hit me. Fun fact of the day. I saw an article that said that Bill Gates is the largest private, like, single... Landowner. Farm. Farm landowner. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There you go, conspiracy theorist. Take that and run with it. I don't even know that that's a conspiracy <laughs> theory. I think that there's some some real reality the fact that we're going to have significant farming headwinds mm -hmm. and so uh you know major purchase like that and locking up a commodity like that it's, is very interesting yeah and and may arguably be useful for wealth transfer later oh right? because yeah. what a lot of people don't realize that one of the things in estate planning you can do is to, to amass things like big farms, and if you are forced liquidation, it devalues the farm, or if you turn them into corporate entities and then you start gifting small portions, you hmm. fracture the farm, which devalues it on paper and lowers your tax exposure. Interesting. So there are some clever things that can go hmm. on at the high end of planning. Right. Um, it usually involves really smart CPAs and folks like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I'm talking at it like, well, I know it exists. It's not something that I do for people. It's something I coordinate with smart CPAs. attorneys and yeah. CPAs. Yeah. But yeah, intentionally defective entities can be a way to devalue things for estate planning purposes. Hmm. So uh, there, there may be some merit to that. And right. also, my suspicion is more straightforward than that, that farmland's a pretty precious commodity. There's not going to be more of it. Well, like, like, for example, California may have a lot of farmland, but pretty soon it's not going to have any water. So mm -hmm. that farmland may be wasteland. 
That's so they're gonna have to go other places in order to grow the crops. Yep. Might as well scoop it up while yep. it's yeah. A, and so yeah. this is just making a, making a play at the at the price and time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and it's a diversifier. So right. Uh, but all of that is to suggest it's not you know what's the theory that most likely explains it right? Mm-hmm. Is it that Bill Gates wants to starve the world? Mm-hmm. Or is it right. that there what are some other reasons that actually it? fits? Yeah. And so. Notice I didn't go out there and go looking for it. I just took that and said, well, what is a reasonable explanation for the data? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, the, the farther you have to stretch, you know, Bill Gates is in cahoots, cahoots with aliens. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. Again, I can't say it's a zero probability. I could just say it's so out there that it doesn't make sense. Okay. But if Bill Gates is an alien and he's secretly planning a hostile takeover of the universe, then. Okay, that, why, what can I do about that, right? <laughs> but as an investor, the probability says, well, there's a 99.9% chance it's not that, so I'm going to play it differently. I really love how we're ending this show today. Yeah, so, <laughs> we so, were so on track for so long. So so in the end, I believe in playing the odds and letting the, the data inform the narrative rather than me seeking data to confirm a narrative I want to believe. It's beautiful, David. Beautiful. All right. Look, the music's going to hit, and we're going to have to get rocking here. So uh, as a last-ditch effort, Matt, how can they reach us? Give us a ring at 541-375-0898. All right. You can do that. Uh, hit us up at info at littlejohnfs.com. Uh, feel free to give us questions offline. If you've got anything you want us to cover on the show, let us know that as well. But until then, we are out of time. So uh, we'll be signing off here. Uh, we'll see you next week. This has been David Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM at 1240 KQEN. The preceding program was paid for by Littlejohn Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.